0: He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. To the cloud, here we go. And we're live for. What's the name of this show? That's right, the stand operating table podcast. Oh, we just had we had a, a bit of a train wreck here before we started recording. We had a guest in Australia who thought this was her time for the the interview and she showed up at the same time Today's guest, Alex Feinberg showed up and I, I thought I screwed up something awful by researching the wrong person. but <laughs> we have today. Alex Feinberg. Philip, why is I'm he sorry. here? Why do we have Alex here with us today?
1: <laughs> yes, welcome to Alex. Um, Alex, I think, has a very uh, interesting background that includes uh, being a professional athlete uh, and a fitness and nutrition, nutrition enthusiast. And uh, I think we originally connected because we had a uh, discussion on Twitter. Um, Alex is some of Alex's uh, thoughts and messaging around nutrition might seem to be a little counter to mine, but uh, in reality, I think we agree on uh, a lot more than we disagree on. Um, and so, I thought we would, you know, it would be an interesting discussion to um, to uh, go through some of that. Uh, but before we get to that, I'd love for Alex to tell us a little bit more about his background. Introduce himself to our audience. And, uh, and then we can get into it. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Uh, excited to be here. So a uh, you know, quick
2: synopsis on, on who is Alex Feinberger. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, like I mentioned, I wanted to be a professional baseball player uh, when I was in high school. I worked very hard to earn a scholarship offer from Vanderbilt University, among other schools. Um, ended up taking a leap of faith, moving to Nashville, Tennessee back in 2004. Uh, spent four years at Vanderbilt. Um, played on their baseball team, eventually got drafted by the Colorado Rockies and played professionally uh, a couple of years after that. But during my time at Vanderbilt, I noticed uh, a couple things that have-
0: Wait, 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 wait. I got to ask you something. What position were you?
2: I got recruited as a shortstop, but my coach didn't think I had the athleticism to actually play shortstop after he saw me play you know, several dozen games. And so I ended up playing third base my freshman year and then second base my last three years and a combination of all of those in the minor leagues.
0: Do you have a third baseman's arm or a second baseman's arm?
2: I had a third baseman's arm at one point in my life, and I think I ended my career with a second baseman's arm.
0: Okay. Didn't mean to take you off track there, but... <laughs> no, no
2: big deal. Um, yeah. And so I always people... Tell are going to
0: want to know this stuff.
2: Of course, of course. And I always tell people that, you know, I was an economics major in uh, at Vanderbilt, which is considered to be a real, uh, real major, even though I don't consider it to be a real major. I consider it to be alchemy or advanced... Form of alchemy, but you know the job market considers it to be a real major. Um, but in my four years at Vanderbilt, I thought I learned more uh, in baseball practice and on the field than I did in any classroom. And one of the things that I learned and that I had to learn in order to be um, you know top of mind for scouts or, or at least uh, valuable in the eyes of scouts is I need to needed to learn how people thought. I needed to understand heuristic thinking because if you guys have seen Moneyball or you're familiar with a lot of sports psychology. Um, a lot of the people making the playing decisions, the drafting decisions, they're not really looking at statistics. They're, they're making heuristic assessments uh, about what they perceive your potential to be. And once I realized that a majority of people made heuristic assessments to navigate the world rather than making you know data-driven uh, statistics based decisions, I started noticing a couple of things that are really, really important, um, namely, a lot of the successful businessmen who were around us when I was at Vanderbilt were in good shape and they spoke well. And I found myself in the you know in my seat in uh, finance classes listening to bankers who dressed well, spoke well, um, and were in good shape. And you know the thing that I took from it is the real world seems like it's going to be a scary place. I have no idea how I'm going to make money. I have no idea what the job market's going to be like. But if there's one thing that i can make sure of when i'm in the job market is i'm going to be in good shape and so after i got done with my lackluster minor league career i spent about a year and a half working at a global macro hedge fund in hong kong came to believe that central banks around the world were coordinating to devalue currencies and i thought that the tech sector was going to be the best place for me to bet my time because uh startups as well as you know larger tech companies are very sensitive to lower cost of capital, low interest rates, uh, which essentially meant the venture capital firms were going to be able to raise a ton of money and deploy it into then overvalued startups. And so back when I was about 25 years old, I thought, well, if I want to make money, I got to put myself in the center of the money. And I moved back to Silicon Valley. Um, Ultimately, Elevator pitched my way into Google because I had the conviction that if I show up in a custom tailored suit and I'm in good shape and I speak well, I can talk my way into a job And that is actually what happened. That's actually how I got into Google. Um, And while I was at Google, I spent six years at Google. I made sure that I would continue to train hard every morning because I wanted that advantage of being in good shape. That being said, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I do now looking back at some of the pictures, I had managed to actually pack on some pounds um, in my first couple of years at Google. A very crazy thing happened in 2014. I switched teams. I got into a strategy role. I worked alongside a triathlete named Woods and we had a bro bench press competition back in 2014. This was back when I bench pressed um, and I won the bench press competition. I got 15 repetitions and Woods got six. He was second place. And I thought, man, you know, Woods isn't really that much weaker than me, but he can run a lot faster than I can. It's really cool that he can run mile after mile at a low six minute pace. I wonder if I can do that. And so one thing that I changed with my training back in 2014 was I decided to run fewer miles, but faster. And I knew based on the research at the time, and a lot of the research that still exists, that that is not supposed to be an effective fat loss strategy, that uh, you don't burn more calories by running faster. In fact, you burn fewer calories because you're less, you're active for a shorter duration of time. And so I jumped into this endeavor with zero expectation of any body change. I just wanted to get better at running fast. And a crazy thing happened. Like within two weeks, I noticed fat melting off my body, fat that I didn't even realize that I had to lose was melting off my body with no additional effort, Uh, actually less effort because I wasn't running as long. Um, And I thought, well, let's keep Playing with this. I know it's not supposed to work, but it's working. Let me see if I continue to make similar adaptations, continue to run faster, but shorter, continue to lift heavier, but for fewer reps. Let me see where that takes me. And this entire time, I was eating delicious food every meal of every day because I believe that that was my right as a reasonably successful individual to only eat delicious food. And I wanted to make a point to not become consumed by fitness. I want to have a life outside of fitness. I wasn't going to be counting calories. I wasn't going to be tracking macros. I wasn't going to be eating salads in order to get uh, ripped. The only thing I was willing to do was uh, maintain my hour commitment about daily to the gym um, and never sacrifice taste in how I ate. So those were the two rules that I gave for myself is I can't try harder than X in the gym. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. And I'm unwilling to ever sacrifice taste or go hungry in my diet. Let me see how much progress I can make. Over the next three years, I ended up dropping from about 12% caliper body fat or hydrostatic body fat um, is what it's based off of to about 4% hydrostatic body fat without ever counting calories, without ever going hungry, without ever doing crazy workouts. And I thought to myself back in 2017, if there's any one way that I can actually change the world or influence people and make their lives better, it's to share how much easier fitness can be. If you change your North star, if you move away from targeting calories as the foundation of your diet and fitness plan and switch towards targeting performance, because if you target performance, you have to get recovery, right? You have to get nutrition, right? And you end up building a body that I came to find out later, burn 2600 calories at rest, like resting metabolic rate, you know, so 3000 calories a day on days that I don't go to the gym and if I had to point to why that exists, it's how I eat and how I train. And it's not supposed to work based on a lot of available science, but it works for me and it works for dozens of people who I train one-on-one or hundreds of people, thousands of people who purchase my products. There's a reason why they're mostly rated five stars, right? And so I think you know, the, the key to um, our collective success Is we found we seem to have found an easier way to accomplish the hard thing that doesn't involve the struggle that fat loss is supposed to involve.
0: Okay, Phil. Help me out here because I'm I'm I've got lots of questions. And I
1: I hear a conflict here. Well, you know, so and and that's what's interesting, you know, because on the surface, I think people would look at it and say, you know, you're basically saying eat whatever you want uh, and we're going to compensate for it uh, with, you know, training and activity. Um, But I know that's not actually, um, you know, what you talk about having, uh, you know, having uh heard you in other uh, arenas and and uh you know for some of the exchanges that we've had um there is uh you know one of the things that I think you agree with is you know uh that you should be eating real food. you can yes. eat a lot of it, but you need to eat real food first and foremost and absolutely so- and, and so I get into
2: this in you know my ten easy wins for easier fat loss guide like I would never just tell somebody eat intuitively. Because if you tell somebody to eat intuitively, they're going to eat exactly the way they've eaten their entire lives. That has led them to looking the way they look. My intuitive eating um, was crafted, and perhaps I should have specified this in the intro, right? I specifically chose to eat protein-dominant real food because protein-dominant real food for me and for most people um, is extremely hard to overeat. If you have your stress levels moderated, if you're properly hydrated, if you're properly sleeping, and especially if you're, if you're doing some form of intense exercise, which i found to regulate appetite as well. And so if several preconditions are met and you end up eating protein dominant, real food, you know, it's really, really hard to get overweight on an all sushi diet, right? Or if you ate poke, poke bowls with like 12 ounces of fish, three meals a day. It would be really hard for the average person to eat like 1,800 calories worth of that. Um, Now, there's a couple ways you could get to eating below 1,800 calories. You could count them. And if you count them and you ate processed food, maybe you'd end up hungry at the end of your day and you'd find them unsustainable. Or if you end up eating protein dominant real food, um, perhaps with a, a leaner tilt, if you're not hugely active in the gym. Then you'll find that it's actually incredibly difficult to eat the amount of calories that you've previously been eating. And you've found that you're
0: actually on a diet without realizing it. So, are you saying that? Uh, I want to try to put the pieces together here. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, overeating is primarily, and, and by overeating, Consuming more calories than your body needs and therefore turning it into stored fat that mm-hmm. um, overeating is far more it, it's far more difficult when the food that you're eating uh, is high protein is is well protein dominant yes, which would imply, That if you are overeating, you're probably not eating a protein dominant diet?
2: Not necessarily. So usually that's the case, but a lot of times people will eat because it's mealtime or they'll eat because they're bored. They'll eat because food is in front of them. And one thing that I tell people is food is very different than air in the sense that you have a choice whether to consume what's in front of you. And so if you think about how the average American consumes food, you know, I'll give you an example. I have seen one of my buddies play his last major league series in Washington D.C. a couple of years ago. And I, I went to the gym um, on the last day of the series, and I got my workout in. and Went to the airport, got picked up by a Lyft driver, and you know, I got my veins pumping because I just I just got done with a workout. And the Lyft driver looks at me, and he's like, "Oh man, like, how can you help me get rid of some of this tummy fat?" Everybody thinks that it's just tummy fat; but they don't realize that it's like all fat. And so, you know, I'm talking to him, and I'm saying, "Okay, so like, what do you eat?" Like, you know, I wake up in the morning, I have some orange juice, have maybe like a a muffin or something like that. Like, are you hungry in the morning? No. Okay, well, why are you eating if you're not hungry in the morning? Oh, I I just want to make sure that I don't get hungry later. It's like, well, how about you just wait until you're hungry? And so we as a society have, have grown up around the idea that we're supposed to have fixed meal times. We got to eat breakfast before we go to work. We got to eat lunch. We got to eat dinner. Realistically, I think the average sedentary American probably only needs to eat two meals a day, and only one of which I think needs to have carbs. Now, if you're an active person, you might need to eat three, four, five, six meals a day. But if you're not that active, it, you'll end up eating a lot less if you simply eat when you're hungry, provided that you don't have an underlying metabolic condition or, or any of the uh, red flags that I mentioned earlier. If you simply just wait till you're hungry and eat when you're hungry and stop eating when you're full and eat protein-dominant real food, most people will find that they're eating a lot less than, oh, it's 8 o'clock, so I'm going to eat breakfast. Oh, it's 12 o'clock, so I'm going to eat lunch. Oh, it's happy hour, so I'm going to eat what's in front of me. Oh, it's 7 o'clock, so I'm going to eat dinner.
0: So this is a behavior modification that just happens to express itself as eating better but yeah. it's 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 not so much hey i'm going to focus on eating fewer calories or eating better food the focus is i'm eating only when i'm hungry and then inside that narrow parameter protein dominant real food
2: yeah and i think i learned that as a competitive athlete where bad coaches will will tell you to achieve the effect you know they'll, they'll tell you um you know your your pitches are sailing or they'll, they'll, they'll tell you um they'll give you some you know explanation for your biomechanics and they'll, they'll tell you that um oh you're dropping your hands you're popping up because you're dropping your hands whereas a good coach doesn't tell you to keep your hands high a good coach actually tells you imagine you're doing x and the outcome of imagining you're doing x is the result that they want and so i think I've i've you know, looked at life with a similar prism where bad coaches will tell people um, to do the thing that they want. Good coaches will tell people to do the easiest thing that then results in the thing that they want.
0: Give me an example of that.
2: If I wanted you to eat less, I, I could tell you eat 1500 calories a day, right? Or I could simply tell you, just wait, wait till you're hungry to eat and eat protein, real food. Both, both suggestions may leave you eating 1500 calories a day, which one's easier?
0: wait till you're hungry and eat the protein dominant. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, so interesting to me that, you know, uh, basically that's the same conclusion that I've come to, you know, and, uh, starting from a different point, you know, uh, and so I guess I'd love to hear your perspective on, you know, because you said one of the sort of preconditions for this is that you have to be attuned to your hunger signals and uh that gets into you know our metabolic health and when we're Mm -hmm. metabolically broken uh one of the things that gets broken is our hunger signals. right Uh, we know that almost everyone is metabolically broken you know the the statistics show you know 88 of the adults in the us are, are metabolically broken on some level um so how do you start that process with people who are already metabolically broken, overweight, diabetic, uh, you know, however you want to look at it, uh, how do you get them to that point that they can then trust their hunger signals?
2: Well, I think you need to take a wait and see approach. So, you know, what I want to do when I'm working with somebody first and foremost is make any suggestion that I make sustainable. So before I want to put somebody on a prescriptive plan, you know, what I want to figure out is, well, what are you eating? You know, just, if you can just eat protein-dominant real food when you're hungry until you're full, just send me pictures of what you're eating. Most people that I've worked with who, who are you know very overweight—they're not—they're when they follow that sort of diet framework, they don't end up eating in a highly dysregulated way. Um, they they actually eat much more in accordance with what normal people would eat. So you know I haven't encountered that many people whose hunger signals are so dysregulated that, hey, Alex, I'm eating protein-dominant real food. When I'm hungry, I'm just so hungry that I'm eating, you know, four pounds of steak a day uh, with just a couple, you know, cup of rice or two. Like I have not, I literally have not encountered somebody who does that. Um, And if I did, I don't know what I would tell them. I would probably then put them on a, uh, you know, try to um, suggest a restrictive eating window, right? It's like, well, okay, if if your bio signals are, Skewing you towards overconsuming, there's like six different levers we can pull to get you eating less. Let's try one of them. Um, another one that I try is intense exercise. You know, I've noticed that with intense cardio, and one of the reasons why I like intense cardio is it tends to have an appetite suppressive effect. Um, whereas moderate cardio, I've noticed, tends to make people more hungry. Uh, intense cardio can make people less hungry. And so I've been very in tune with, um, you know, I would say, Non-linear biofeedback, right? Because I think a lot of uh, a lot of the medical community, a lot of the university system trains people to to falsely see linear patterns in the world, where a lot of times um, exceptions exist at the tail end, and that's where you can learn a lot. Where it's like, okay, I do notice that I, the, the harder I work out, the hungrier I get. Except if I work out ten out of ten, then I'm actually less hungry. What's going on there, and how can how can I use this tool to, number one, see if it's true with other people? And number two, make what we're trying to accomplish easier.
0: So I, w- I want to pursue the working out angle. <clears throat> um, most folks will, will, will make a dividing line in a workout between the cardio and some form of weight training. Let's talk first about what that kind of hyper intense cardio looks like. How how how? Yeah, let's just what's that kind of hyper intense cardio look like? Working harder for less long.
2: Yeah, it's interval training, um, either on a treadmill or on an assault bike. So assault bike for the people who may not be familiar, it's the bike that has handles as well as pedals. Um, It's the only exercise cardio machine that I've found that can replicate the intensity of running without the joint load. So that's one reason why I like it a lot. But a cardio session might mean um, something as short as five 60 second intervals with 60 seconds rest in between um, and maximum eight 60 second intervals with 30 to 60 seconds rest in between. And so what we're looking at is uh, a 10 to 16 minute cardio event. And I call it an event because unlike most trainers, I'm tracking that. right? I'm not asking you to, hey, go get on the bike for 20 minutes, see if you can burn 300 calories. Um, No, I'm saying, this is your event. Let's measure how you're doing. Let's compare your output to last week, to the week before. And, and your previous output will keep you honest with yourself because if you're not tracking your cardio, then you say, well, yeah, it's pretty hard. It felt pretty hard. It's like, yeah, but how did your output compare to last week and the week before? What I've found is if people force themselves to have increasingly higher output. Yeah, it's hard. It's the hardest part of the training that we do, but it's only you know, 12 to 15 minutes a day, a few times a week, most people have the emotional reserves to do something challenging 12 to 15 minutes a day, a few times a week. Um, and then the end result is less body fat. And it's either because doing cardio like that increases your resting metabolic rate, or it curbs your hunger or a combination of the two, but it works and it, it's, it's much, much more emotionally sustainable than, Oh, you know, I'm going to go run four miles and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I'm going to do it again the day after that. It's like, I used to do that. It didn't work well from a fat loss standpoint. What I'm doing now is shorter. It's easier. It's not easy, but it's easier. Uh, and works better
0: What's that? Because the duration is shorter. Yeah. Because the duration
1: is shorter.
2: Yeah.
1: And Comments, so when please Phil. Yeah, I was just going to say. So when you're doing that, though, your intervals are are like true max, uh, you know, intensity, max exertion. Uh, you know, to uh, uh, this isn't just. I, I think people oftentimes confuse, uh, you know, the intensity of the workout with the duration of the workout. You know, they think right. it's a, an, an intense workout because they jogged for an hour. As opposed to you know doing a couple of sixty second sprint intervals, um, you know is uh, and uh, we we actually have had a previous guest on Sean O'Mara. I'm not sure if you know him uh, or familiar with him, but uh, you know he 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 says the same thing. You know, go out there and sprint. Uh, don't bother jogging.
2: Right, right, right. And so you know, is it as intense as I can do it over a, over the cumulative duration? It is so. If I went 100% as hard as I could on my first interval, I would have zero gas in the tank for my second. So I'm pacing myself so that the summation of my output across six to eight intervals, however many I'm doing, is as high as I can, as I can make it. Um, now, some you know, if we get into some specifics, some days I actually target 90% of my PR. Some days right. I target 95% of my PR. Some days I try to hit my PR. But the goal is to, is to pace myself such that my output throughout the whole thing can be maximized what that looks like is I'm probably going at about 90% 85% of my maximum capacity that I could actually do for one repetition of 60 seconds but I'm doing it for about eight of them
0: so um you know I'm an old guy mm-hmm. uh, and the the story I've been told for most of my adult life is you want to you want your cardio workout to uh, stay in the, I think they're calling it the orange zone now. I don't mm-hmm. know why that's, um, so watch your heart rate and, and the, the, that heart rate zone training, uh, is, is the secret. That's the key. Don't let it get too high. Um, you know, the you know, the story, blah, 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 blah. Uh, mm-hmm. and the older you get, the lower that number gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I far. find it really, really easy to get out of that orange zone to get mm-hmm. above that and I'll be frank I don't have a clue which ways which one makes the most sense I'm
2: I think they're working different systems in your
0: body and I think you know I can kick it to a
2: to a medical expert to to correct me on this but my sense is the the zone 2 orange zone whatever you want to call it that training um probably is better for uh, at least certain elements of cardiac output. That being said, I don't think it affects your endocrine system to nearly the extent of the intense training. And so that's something that people don't realize when they're assessing the efficacy of a workout is every exercise you select is optimized to achieve a different goal than a different exercise. So is a 30 minute, you know, 55% maximum heart rate, um cardio session better for you than a 12-minute uh, high-intensity interval session. It's like, well, it depends what you mean by better, right? One may be better for building cardiac health, another may be better for regulating your appetite, um, and perhaps lowering your blood sugar, um, improving your body composition. Both outcomes are ideal or beneficial if you want to be healthy and live long, but each activity. Um, is optimized for a slightly different end goal.
0: I like that answer.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. you know the 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 zone two training, if you're trying to build your aerobic capacity, um, you know zone two training is is uh, kind of shown to be effective for that. Uh, but um, you know, if you're not trying to be a marathon runner, then you don't need to train for marathons, you know, it's kind of what it comes down to. And uh, so I, I think it really does come down to your goals um, like anything else, you know, you have to, you have to kind of be, uh, you know, directed different things are going to get you different results uh, and you have to figure out what you're trying to accomplish uh, to then figure out the best way to go about it. Um, I guess, tying back to your earlier career, uh, you know, if you, you know, you can approach your finances in many different ways and you can, you know, kind of spend less and, and save over the long run or you can try and hit the lottery, you know, and you'll end up wealthy with both of those approaches. But, uh, you know, you got to really figure out, I guess, which one you're, uh, you know, which one you're going for there. Um, but uh I, I think you know the key thing that I pull out of your messaging is you need to be intentional about all of this and you need to be thinking about what you're doing. Um, and you can't just be sort of doing things because that's what everyone else around you is doing.
2: Yeah, and you need you need to make progress, like you know, intentionality is paired with progress because if you're not pushing your body to do something that it's uncomfortable doing, then it has no reason to physiologically adapt to any stimulus, right? You need to give your body stimulus that it's not accustomed to if you want your body to to look or perform in a way it hasn't performed before. And the cool thing about that, that I have found, and this may not be true for your first few months on a a training plan, but it is true. You know, after you've been doing it for a couple of a few years is for myself and for a lot of the people that I work with, we benefit from doing less, right? I tweeted about this uh, a few days ago. I'm not, I taken four days off from working out this week. My sleep, um, was not good for a couple nights over the weekend. I had several weeks of really, you know, really effective and intense training leading up to that, which could actually um, uh, cause, you know, sleeping challenges. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm not feeling my best this week. And there's no reason for me to get in there just to get some reps in because my metabolism isn't just going to, you know, grind to a halt from that training I'm not going to just add a bunch of fat from my training. All I'm going to do is get more rested so that when I start back tomorrow, I'm going to have more energy. I'm going to be at lower risk for injury. I'm going to have greater output from my training, and I'll be able to make more progress from that. And so a lot of people, I think, get burnt out from diet and exercise because they, they start believing that calories in and calories out are their God. And if calories in and calories out are your God, you're never allowed to miss a day in the gym, right? Mm -hmm. And when you you make performance your God rather than calories in, calories out, you know that you can't miss that many days because your performance is going to suffer. But you know, if you skip zero workouts, your performance is also going to suffer. So having a performance focused goal makes it a lot more emotionally sustainable in my view and in the experience of the people who I work with.
0: So what are you measuring And when you say measuring output with the cardio? What are you measuring?
2: So if it's a uh, treadmill, I'm measuring my speed. So I'm measuring my average speed. Um, this Sunday, I did seven repetitions, 60 seconds each. I started at um, 10.5, then uh, 10.5 miles per hour, 1.5% incline. So at 10.5, 11, 11.5, 11.7, 11.9, 12.1, 12.3, 12.5. And so what I'll do at the end of that is we'll just kind of say, okay, what's my average. That average was uh, actually slightly below the previous week when I had a little bit more energy and it's fine. I'm not going to be able to outperform myself every week, but I want to be able to track what is my moving average on say uh, an eight sprint um, set, or if I'm doing it on the assault bike, you know, I'm tracking my calories per interval, not because I care about calories burned, but I use it as an output tracker because the the harder you're pedaling the more calories that bike is going to say you're burning. And so a excellent um, cardio output day for me on the Rogue Assault bike is anything over uh, 20 calories per 60-second interval, very, very good output. Um, Anything over 19 calories on average for a 60-second interval for me is quite a decent output, nothing to be ashamed of. Anything over 18 calories per interval is like, hey, that's not bad. You got your work in better than not doing it. And I'm never gonna go below 18 because if I'm gonna go below 18 I'm just not gonna do it
0: and we're talking five six seven sets
2: yeah eight so, yeah
0: so when you're when you're killing it you're burning 160 calories
2: maybe I mean I've talked about the fact that we yeah. don't actually know how many calories we are burning when we work out that's the estimate yeah like if I'm to use basic templates for calorie burn um, you know as it relates to workouts, my guess is I'm burning about 3,000 calories per week in the gym. Um, but my I'm probably eating about 23,000 calories per week, and so uh, probably more than that actually. I'm probably eating closer to 25,000 calories.
0: 3,000, of- yeah,
2: yeah. I'm, I'm eating over 3,000 a day on average, not every day, but like you know, I, I can eyeball it, I know.
0: And this is 3,000 uh, protein high protein, high protein, yeah. high
2: fat.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so of things, to...
0: I'm, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here very briefly. Sure. Uh, Phil surprised me several weeks ago by talking about the importance of getting my macros right. Sure. Um, I just, I assumed as long as I'm keeping my carbs low, my chances of staying in ketosis are good. Mm-hmm. And Phil pointed out to me that if you get, too much protein in relationship to fat, that can kick you out of ketosis as well. Am I saying that right, Phil? Um, yeah. but so So I've started to pay attention to the relationship, the ratio of fat to protein.
2: Well, so my question that might precede that is, how would you ever find yourself eating insufficient animal fat if you're not a masochist?
0: Well, I, for example, I had tuna for lunch and I was looking at it and it was like, there's 42 grams of protein in this can. And it was, I think 10 grams of fat. I would be surprised
2: if it's actually that many, maybe, maybe. um, but I mean, sure. You eat tuna, I eat tuna, I eat salmon, but like, surely you like eating steak. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, you, you would have to be intentionally abstaining from animal fat. If you're, if you're eating an animal product intensive diet, um, you would have to be intentionally abstaining from, uh, the medium fat or higher fat products in order to get your overall fat consumption to be like lower than 20% of your total, total calorie consumption. If you like, I eat the amount of fat that I crave. So for lunch, because I haven't been that active this week, I haven't been craving as much steak. So I had mostly salmon as my protein for lunch. But if I did squats yesterday, I'd probably be a little bit hungrier today. So I'd eat steak. What I have found is my hunger levels will correspond to what my metabolic needs are. And so if I'm craving that fattier steak or if I'm craving bone marrow or if I'm craving, you know, fattier chicken or something like that, it's like there's probably a reason why you're craving fattier meats today than you were last week. Have you
0: you always been that uh, uh, aware of your of, of what your body is asking for? Well, let is, me, let's, that reverse,
2: let's reverse engineer it. I have always known what I've wanted to eat, what's tasted like, like this all started. This didn't start from me wanting to be ripped. This started from me wanting to enjoy the taste of every meal of every day. And so, if, if you really just take that to its logical extreme, if you want to savor every meal of every day, what do you need to do? you can't eat when you're not hungry because if you eat when you're not hungry, that food doesn't taste as good when you are hungry. So you really gotta you got to be, you know, really, really protective of, of those meal meal times because if you're just you know grazing all day, your food's not gonna taste as good, right? The other thing that you need to do to maximize your enjoyment of food, um, you probably need to moderate your sugar consumption a little bit because the more sugar you have, the uh, less sensitive you are to the delicious flavors that exist outside of sugar. Um, Another thing that you need to do is you need to have a really good idea of what will taste absolutely the best your next meal. And so because before I got ripped, I was still eating, you know, three, four thousand calories a day. You know, I'm thinking if you're if it's 11 o'clock and you're hungry, you know, you're thinking, wow, do I want to eat shrimp? Do I want to eat steak? Do I want to eat a burrito? Like you'll be naturally inclined to think I want to eat X. And so I just ran with that. I'm just like, well, if I want to eat that, I'm going to eat that. And over the years, it was, it just, I just steered it towards protein dominance. So I've always been in tune with, I really want to eat this in an hour, right? I have a craving for this. And, and I arrogantly decided to run with that um, in thinking that if my body's telling me it, there's probably a reason. Lo and behold, several years later, looking back on the results, my body seems to know what it's asking for. Right. As long as I maintain the preconditions that I mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah. And I think, again, that's where the, you know, the caution has to come in, because for most people, you know, especially if you have become obese, if you have become metabolically unhealthy, um, those signal you you don't have that intuition. You know, we um, the processed food hijacks our uh, hunger signals and our society signals. And so, you know, most people who are in that situation, if you say, what are you craving? You know, they're going to say something like ice cream or, you know, cake or cookies or, you know, sugar, because the, the, you know, sort of sugar addiction has taken over for that intuitive eating. But, you know, when you look at for most of our existence as human beings, what did we crave? We craved, you know, fatty animal meats. Um, that's what we craved as human beings. That's what drove our, you know, evolution and, and, uh, you know, our survival. Uh, and it's only in, you know, modern times, uh, that we've now introduced this other stuff into our food environment that messes with those signals. And I think that's a large part of why we are where we are, you know, on the uh, societal health level.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Do it. If I remember, you said uh at, at, after some amount of time you got down to 4% body fat from yeah. what'd you say 11? 12. 12%? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you, I'd be thrilled to be 12% body fat. I'd wow. be ecstatic. Yeah. Um in my mind, you started from a place infinitely better then, I mean, my goal is to get to fourteen. That's, sure. you know that's where I'd really like to be. If I'm at fourteen, I'm going to be a pretty lean, healthy sixty-year-old. Sure. Um, how do we know this didn't just work? Because you started, you 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 were born on third base. You know, you started yeah. with a with you had a head start on on us normal folks. Right. The, so.
2: So I didn't have a head start from a body fat standpoint in the sense that if you looked at pictures of me when I was a kid um, on the baseball teams that I played on, I was usually the fattest kid on the team. Um, I did have a head start from a muscle building standpoint. It was always easier for me to, to build strength and muscle than my peers. So growing up, I was always like heavier sets probably. I don't like saying that, but yeah, I guess I was heavier set growing up. Easier for me to build muscle, easier for me to build fat. Um, that type of person will do well with my system because um, they already have lean muscle mass. And lean muscle mass is, as I call it, the, uh, you know, the engine, your metabolic engine. It is more challenging for people who don't have uh, lean muscle mass to start with. It's sort of like an economic problem where it's much easier to solve for inflation or unemployment It's much harder to solve for inflation and unemployment. Um, What I found is typically you need to focus on one or the other. And so, if you look at, uh, say, say muscle gain um, is is inflation, and uh, and and fat loss or fat carrying is unemployment or something like that. Um, Typically, what I found is unless the person is uh, obese, it actually has, uh, you know, metabolic, like challenging metabolic uh, symptoms for eating. Um, I actually prefer people add lean muscle first before they shift their focus to to fat loss, because I find it to be a lot easier to lose fat when somebody has um, a faster metabolic engine. So if I were working with you one-on-one, um, I would be steering you and, and chances are you haven't actually trained in the way that would even let you know if you could maximize your uh, the way you've built muscle. So you know if you if if your resistance training has been confined to like, oh I went to a boot camp class and you know I tried lifting weights for a few months. You know, back then it's like, well, you probably have a much higher ceiling than you realize. Um, I would first target getting your lower body stronger if I were working with you. So you know I'd say let's just see how the, how this goes. Right? We're gonna have you uh, protein-dominant real food when you're hungry till you're full. We want you getting stronger on your squats. And if, if your body's not in a position to do squats, we want you getting stronger on walking lunges, we want you stronger on leg press. We'll find a movement that fits you biomechanically, but we wanna get your legs stronger. Um, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Very few people are hyper-optimized at 18% body fat. There are so many levers that can be pulled to get somebody from 18% body fat to 14% body fat. That even if my exact approach um, isn't viable for somebody at that point, there are many, there, there's many paths to victory if the goal is simply 14% body fat. If the goal is 4% body fat, there are fewer paths to victory for that. But if we're just talking about, you know, dropping dropping 4% body fat, there's a lot of levers we could pull to, to get somebody in your position dropping 4% body fat.
0: Okay, well, let's take it now to the resistance training. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your resistance training change?
2: Uh, longer rest periods in between sets, longer rest periods in between workouts as they got stronger. And so very much the opposite of what uh, was taught and still probably is taught to trainers for fat loss. Like if you go to most trainers and say, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds of fat. We'll say, okay, great. We'll keep your heart rate high through a workout, do a set. Well, you know, sometimes you see people like, do we'll do push-ups between deadlift sets or something like that. Right. It's like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And and they're trying to maximize their calories burned in session. So here's what happens. If you do if you do a deadlift and you know say you're deadlifting 225 pounds, which is hard for you. And then you know you probably need four minutes rest to be able to do that again. Um, with a similar level of, uh, of intensity keeping your form well well if you do a set of push-ups in between you're not going to be able to lift as heavy the next set and so what ends up happening is in order to perform your resistance training in the aerobic capacity that your trainer has designed it you are lessening the stimulus that is applied to your muscles you can't lift this heavy if you can't lift as heavy, you should not expect your muscles to grow as large. You should not expect your resting metabolic rate to spike as high because you should not expect to carry the additional lean muscle mass that you would carry if you took longer rest periods in between sets, collected yourself and applied full effort and intensity to the set that you're doing.
0: So your if I understand correctly, your philosophy uh, in regards to resistance training and we are speaking specifically now about fat loss, but your your philosophy in regarding resistance training is um lift heavier for fewer sets, fewer reps, and it sounds like as heavy as you can manage for fewer sets, fewer reps with as much rest in between sets. As you've got to, as you've got to get, would that be a.
2: That's a a decent approximation with like several qualifiers that listeners (laughs) could probably imagine, but, but yeah, you know, you want to be able to lift heavy. What do you need to do to lift heavy? You need to rest a lot to lift heavy. Number one, you need to rest between sets. You need to rest between workouts. If you're not doing that, you're not maximizing your ability to lift heavy, particularly once you've been lifting for a few years. It's a little bit different when you're a beginner because your body can respond. Your body doesn't know how to lift heavy enough weights that will require multiple days of rest in a row after an intense workout. But as you get stronger, as you get to an intermediate or advanced stage, you simply can't go in and squat heavy twice a week and benefit from it. It's just not going to work. You cannot rest 90 seconds in between squat sets and expect to benefit from it. It's not going to work. Can you get away with that your first three to six months? Yeah, you might be able to because your body's still getting in generally better shape and you need to practice lifting weights and you're maximizing your practice repetitions effectively. But As you get stronger, as your body develops the ability to move more weight, it needs to rest more. And this flies right in the face of the calories in, calories out model because I'm literally telling you to burn fewer calories in the gym by training less.
0: I get it. I think I get it. Good. This makes sense.
1: What would you, uh, what are your thoughts on the um, training? uh you know regimens that are uh you know profess or or you know uh push uh like one set to failure uh and these you know kind of quick efficient workouts uh you know and we see this uh there are a number of them out there you know the uh the the uh Doug McGuff you know body by science the Dr. Ben Bacchiccio uh uh John Jacquish uh, and his X3 bar system. You know, but they're basically pushing just one set uh, that you go to true failure, and that then provides the stimulus for muscle growth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think most people, provided that they don't get hurt, most people would benefit from that because most people are doing zero sets to failure, right? They're they're either getting they're getting they're doing their lifting with insufficient intensity, whether it's because they're not trying hard enough or they're not resting long enough in between sets. So if you take somebody lifting that way and say, okay, don't do four sets like this do one set like that. They're going to get more benefit doing one set like, like that with the high intensity than four sets at lower intensity. Um, the challenge around something like that is you can't hurt yourself. You are you need to make sure you're warmed up properly, right? Yeah. So one of the reasons why, you know, most trainers will have their clients condition after they lift because they say, well, you don't want to burn through your, your muscle glycogen. You want to make sure you have energy to lift. So yeah, I mean, I, I understand that argument but the reality is most people don't warm up properly and and so if you don't warm up properly and you try to go perform a set at you know max effort to failure you're asking for an injury which you do not want to have ever um you're going to have you know minor stuff here and there it's inevitable with training but you do not ever want to have a catastrophic injury and so what i do with myself and with the people that i train is we do cardio first right let's get our let's get our heart rate up let's get our core temperature up and then we're going to go lift weights well, you're going to be in a much safer position to lift closer to failure um, when your core temperature is elevated and you've done a more dynamic workout. And so it's probably not smart to go try to do a set of squats of failure, you know, without doing any sort of dynamic workout, maybe doing two warm up sets and then going. Probably you don't want to do that. But provided that you've warmed up effectively, yeah, I would, pre- I would much prefer one set to failure than the way most people train. Which is like half-assed or just insufficiently intense.
0: Um, is this cardio warm-up the type of this high-intensity yes. cardio? Yeah. So you're actually doing your cardio and your resistance on the same day. Yeah, and I can and space it
2: out because you know I don't have uh, a normal office job um, where I'll do cardio. I like doing cardio on an emptier stomach. I feel like I can. I know that my numbers are better when I don't have a ton of food on me in me. Um, and so commonly I'll go do cardio just with, you know, coffee and some collagen protein in me and I'll go do my morning cardio. Then I'll eat, I'll eat my lunch or breakfast, whatever you want to call it, um, do a little bit of mobility work and then I'm lifting. Right. And so I have, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes to recharge after I've done my cardio because I do other things that I need to do like eating, but yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I do one and the other.
0: Okay, I'll confess, Phil. I wasn't sure what this one was going to be. I really wasn't. I was like, oh, great. We got another muscle head guy who was a professional athlete. What's he going to be able to tell us normal people? Um, this is this. It's it's different, but it makes sense. Yeah, I really I I like it. I I'm, that's a bad way to say it. This
1: resonates with me. No. And I think, and I think that was exactly it. You know, when you first, uh, maybe look at the, uh, you know, on the surface, it seems like a very different, uh, approach. And, uh, the, you know, what I kind of talk about is, you know, maybe counter, uh, but really when you get into it, um, like I said, I think Alex and I agree on, on, uh, a lot more than we would disagree on. And, and we really have come to a, a similar place, you know, eat real food, uh, focus on getting enough protein and, uh, you know, get, uh, train, train and eat with intentionality. Um, and that, that really are the basics of, of success. Yeah. agree.
0: Well, Alex, um, obviously you do, you, you help people um follow this approach what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you if they want to learn more
2: find me on instagram find me on twitter uh, alex feinberg one f-e-i-n-b-e-r-g so it's alex called feinberg alex feinberg one on either one um, on twitter i'll commonly promote um one of my several train or diet products um depending on which day of the week it is so right now today on a recording day i'm promoting my fat loss guide Um, but also do recipes, uh, training programs, masterclass that kind of teaches exactly how um, I approach and how the group I I run approaches, um, how to manage this thing called fitness and life with a smile on our face. I think my my biggest bragging uh, moment from, you know, the class that I run is I, I had a guy named Paul, you know, most of the people who I work with, you know, lose about a pound a week. Some people have lost a lot more, but most of the people I work with lose about a pound a week. And Paul's favorite part about working with me was the eating. And I thought to myself, man, where have you ever found a fat loss plan where the person's most enjoyable part of the fat loss plan is the eating part? Like, I need to figure out how to commercialize this, or I'm very
0: sleepy. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, there's a good headline hiding in there somewhere. Right. Um, right, right. What's your favorite, uh, um, what is your favorite treat for yourself that uh, is is surprisingly healthy as well?
2: Anything with cinnamon. Cinnamon is a like Ceylon cinnamon is a cheat code because it tastes like it's sugar, but it's not sugar. Um, so you know, I found cinnamon is a cheat code. Uh, local raw honey is a cheat code because especially if you have allergies right? Um, you know, that's, that's great. Organic maple syrup, like real maple syrup. People don't realize that most of them, I, I would estimate that most of the maple syrup that people think they're consuming in the United States is actually corn syrup, right? You get that log cabin syrup that they have at the store. I would estimate most people who buy that don't realize that that's not maple syrup. Um, the, the profiles of natural sweeteners, uh, seem to be much, much better than the profiles of, uh, you know, artificially sweetened or, or processed foods. And so I try to stick with natural sweeteners or, you know, I I would call cinnamon a synthetic sweetener because it doesn't really have sugar in it, but it tastes like it does. Uh, A lot of food like that, um, tastes really good. And the cool thing about reducing your sugar consumption is you become more sensitive to the sugar that's already in your diet. So I probably consume about 70% less sugar than I consumed 10 years ago, but I'm not craving sugar. Like I like the amount that I eat. I eat lower sugar chocolate. It tastes awesome to me. It doesn't taste any less good than the higher sugar chocolate that I used to eat 10 years ago. And so, you know, if you want to maximize the value, the taste of all your meals, you know, get sensitive to sugar and you'll find that a small amount goes a long way.
0: Aside from all the 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 benefits of uh, increasing your insulin sensitivity, yeah, <laughs> right, Phil.
1: Exactly. <laughs> all we'll right, you there, Jack. Very good.
0: Uh, my my brain is 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 getting bigger and bigger. Just getting to to talk to people that Phil brings on the show. This this one has been surprising, Alex. I'm. I, you've given me a lot to think about.
2: I'm, gl- I'm glad I, uh, you know, I changed your mind. People, people look at me with my shirt off. I think I'm some, uh, and I, you yeah, know, sometimes I talk like I'm stupid too, but, um, you know, people, people assume that there's not like an IQ behind what I'm doing. It's like,
0: well, know, I, I worked at Google for six years. I went, I went and read your, I went and read your, uh, your, your blog and you talked about, uh, uh, working for a, a hedge fund manager. Yeah. And yep. I thought, oh boy, this guy's this guy's smart. And then the photos where you're just ripped in muscle and muscle, I went, crap, he's smart and fit. Um,
2: and and the, there's a connection between the two because if you're smart, you can find easier ways to do hard things.
0: <laughs> I'm looking for that. I like that idea. Easy ways to do hard things. Yeah. All right. Well, Phil, any last words before we uh, uh, let Alex go for the day?
1: Another great discussion. Uh, Thank you, Alex. And uh, look forward to uh, interacting more uh, on uh, Twitter and everywhere else.
2: Thank you. And um, I don't know if we, if you guys can, I don't think you can now, but like when we just started recording, I don't know if you guys heard a call come in on my system, but like for the first five seconds, there's a, That's why I plug
0: this. Uh, I'll take a look at it. I'll take a look at it. That's certainly doable. Um, It adds some complexity to my whole process, but I'll see what we, I will tell you as a producer, um, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big problem. Okay. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's really, there's an, you know what? I'm going to sign off and then I'll finish this conversation with you because our listeners don't care about this part. Um, For Dr. Philip Ovedi, I'm Jack Heald. This has been the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. I'd encourage you to follow Phil on Twitter at iFixHearts and go to his website, iFixHearts.com, and take his metabolic health quiz. Real good way to uh, just measure yourself. Where am I and what do I need to get better at? And we'll talk to you all next time.